Welcome to Making Connections, a WMNT series on diversifying our future. On July 18th, WMMT and Apple Shop hosted a roundtable discussion called Germany and Appalachia, Perspectives on Economic Transition and Coal Communities. For our Mountain Talk tonight, we've got a recording of the discussion for you. Germany is well known for its historical reliance on coal mining and recent transition to other energy sources, such as renewable energy. Dr. Timon Weiner, an energy expert and researcher based at the Wuppertal Institute for Climate, Environment and Energy, based in Berlin, Germany, joined us to share insights on Germany's energy transition in general, and specifically about the phase-out of coal, structural change, and transformation in German coal communities. Dr. Vayner was joined by leaders working on economic transition in central Appalachia, including Mountain Association for Community Economic Development's Vice President Betsy Whaley and Eric Dixon with the Appalachian Citizens Law Center. Coal mining has been a crucial piece of Germany's power generation. Over the past few decades, Germany has made a major transition towards renewable energy production, which has had significant impacts on energy markets and on former German coal communities. The transition in Germany demonstrates some promising lessons about how German coal communities have sought to diversify and strengthen their local economies as coal faded. A traffic accident held up one of our participants, so you'll hear her join later in the conversation. We have more audio from the question and answer period than we could fit into tonight's Mountain Talk, but we were able to include a few of those questions. The audio was also a little low for some of the questions, so I've restated the question when needed. Enjoy! Yeah, um, thank you for inviting me and uh, thank you for coming and, and listening. Um, I'm Timon, I work for Wuppertal Institute, which is a, it's a think tank in Germany. Um, very much applied research. Um, I actually have, a, for 15 years, I've been working in energy policy work, and uh, for the last two years, and I've more and more looked into how does our industry base uh, transform, how do coal regions, what are their problems, is, and, uh, problems and, and how can we deal with that? Because it's more and more in the political ag agenda in Germany, and I'll tell about that. And I'm very happy to be here. I've spent an interesting day um, touring the region and, and learning from what the problems are here and what, how to address them. Um, I start, or uh, do you want to? I can say just a little bit about myself, and then we'll turn it over to you. Um, hey, everybody. I'm Eric Dixon. I work at Appalachian Citizens Law Center, just just around the street in uh, on Main Street. Uh, I do public policy stuff related to economic transition, and I'll talk a lot about um, a couple federal policy initiatives um, related to, to those issues. And then just to say a little bit about ACLC, we're a nonprofit law firm. We do um, black lung, mine safety, environmental cases serving eastern Kentucky and, and the surrounding region. I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. Can I grab the mic and stand? I just had some coffee that was, uh, <laughs> I'm a little hyper. Um, great. Um, I, I want to present two things to you, and I'll, I'll make a brief so that we have time for discussion. One thing is I'm, I'm going to talk about, the first thing is about um, the energy policy and the energy transition in Germany, and it's just going to be brief because it's, it gives the background of our discussion while we look at coal. Uh, that may be a different background while you look at coal regions, obviously, but um, I'm going to highlight some things in there, and then I'm going to look into some of the coal regions and the historic developments in some of the coal regions in Germany, and, and a tiny bit of, of how have we addressed the economic challenges, which in some way are quite stunningly similar, despite all the differences that I see. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with the German energy transition, but I've heard the story of, hey, in 2011, Fukushima, the nuclear power plant exploded, and suddenly your Germans got scared, and basically you turned around, and it's like, yeah, the thing blew up, Merkel got scared, and you decided, hey, let's, as quickly as possible, get out of nuclear and get rid of it, and without thinking, you turned around with your energy policy. And I've heard, I've really heard this in Germany from foreigners and abroad, 
And I just want to make the point, no, um, that's not how it happened. Um, there is many things you can say about Angela Merkel, but she's not a very emotional person. And uh, not discussing the other details of that, the point is that has been that our energy transition is rooted in a much longer process. And my personal view of where is that rooted is, is in something where we basically shared experiences, at least the older people in the room, it's, it's the oil crisis. And this is a childhood memory. It's not me, but that's my childhood memory of, I learned bicycling on an inner city highway in Munich where I grew up because we had car-free Sundays. We cut down on our coal, uh, on our oil use by once a month not using cars in the whole country. And, and since then, I mean, we don't have the car-free Sundays any, anymore. I, my son had to learn cycling somewhere else. Um, for me, that was a great experience as a kid, as you can imagine. Um, but we've, we've gone to, since that, the early 70s, we've gone to energy efficiency and renewables uh, quite stringently. And I see a lot of similarities if you look at how much research we spent, the countries. What I find an interesting turning point or an interesting milestone is in 2000, in the, in the year 2000. That is from 1990 till 2016, the amount of renewable energy we use in the electricity for electricity production. And in 2000, a new law was installed in Germany that's called the feed-in tariff, where it basically says, if you build up wind farm, solar farm, biomass, whatever, you, you're allowed to feed the electricity into the grid and the utility has to buy it at a certain rate. And that, that price is made so that you as, as the owner of that uh, electricity power plant, you, you make five, six, seven percent of interest over 20 years. They have to pay you for 20 years. And as you see that picked up, we came from 4% of renewables in our electricity grid to now over 30% renewables today. And it's, it's really a dramatic growth if the green stuff is biomass and then the blue thing is wind and there's, despite we're not a very sunny country, uh, there's a whole lot of solar in Germany too. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, been long, it's been a long-term process. That's the one message that one I want to make. And the other message is, um, who did this? And uh, you probably can't read this, but I'll, I'm going to tell you the story. The, the thing is, it's been so simple. You could, everyone could build a renewable power plant uh, and you get that money granted so that it's been actually people doing it on their houses, farmers on their land, and that blue thing is 55% of the, of the renewable power is owned by private individuals including farmers. And that is all kind of, and the only the, the black thing on the top, 6.5% of the renewables in Germany are owned by the utilities, by the big energy companies. The rest of it is cooperatives, developers, it's widely spread among the people. And I find that interesting because it's economically for, for, for especially for rural, small towns, that has been an incentive to go into renewables because they say, hey, for farmers, that's your second income, right? That's your, that's your pension fund. You set up that thing, you know what the PV thing costs, you put the money in, and 20 years, it's paying your income. Second thing which, and, and that is not by accident, that is how the legislation was framed, and it was deliberately to have it on a broader scale in the country. Um, second interesting thing is <clears throat> there is a, I don't know, I have no clue about uh, US tax system. I hardly understand our tax system. But the point is we have a, an, a tax, a profit tax for companies. And normally that is paid in the town where the company sits. So with the renewables, the company sits in one town and the renewables are in another place. So they actually the, the town wouldn't get any tax of the renewables we changed, our government changed that tax so that 70% of the tax income goes to the municipality where actually the renewable site is located. So for small rural uh, communities, that's great. They, they want to have the wind farm. I mean, there's th pros and cons to wind farms and how many wind turbines you want to have in your community, but 
this is bringing a lot of tax money into small um, rural areas. What's the way forward? Um, that's our plan, basically, governmental strategy from 2000 to 2030, and the green thing is the renewable share in our electricity uh, production, and we, we have a long-term goal. It's not on there. We have a long-term goal. Yes, it is. 80% of renewables by 2050. So the long-term plan is going renewables. Um, we're phasing out nuclear, so this is the part of nuclear, and because we've decided to phase out nuclear, we've not been really the share of coal hasn't really changed over the last 20, 30 years. We have 40% coal, pretty much like the US, and that has kept constant. Um, there's currently more and more debate of, hey, we should, uh, we should phase out coal more quickly because for climate reasons, for environmental reasons, gas would be a cleaner option, but actually gas is more expensive than coal. <coughs> Unlike the US, we have a different thing. And Yesterday, I, I've read an interview yesterday of our Chancellor Merkel who said, after the elections, we have elections in September coming up, we're going to address the issue. She didn't, there, there are claims of people who say, 2030, that could be a good phase-out date, 2035, 2040, can we make 2025? But it's something like the next 20 to 30 years, we're going to go out of coal, and after the elections, depending who wins the elections, they're going to set the date. That's what I believe, and Merkel said, yeah, that's what they want to do. So that's the energy background. Of course, in that debate, when people came up and said, hey, can we go out of coal by 2030? Immediately the claim came, hey, so there are people working in the coal mines, there are people working in uh, the coal-fired power plants, what happens to them? So and in the last two years, there's an increasing debate on, on that, which came up to, to a federal level. Am I too slow, no. talking too much? You no. cut me short. Um, so, currently we have 21,000 people working in coal mining, and is that a lot or is that not a lot? We have 85 million people living in Germany. If you look into the statistics, this is from 1958, basically, to 2016, the jobs in coal mining. We have a lot of share of lignite. Oops. Okay. No. Hmm. Close. Uh, we have a share of lignite, and this is hard coal, and this is, the line is coal altogether. In 2058, we had 750,000 people working in mining, only mining. I'm not saying production of the tools, I'm not saying, uh, what's that, post-production, transport, just really mining, miners and their management and anything that's in a mine. 750,000 people and we went down to 21,000 as of beginning this year. So if we're talking about the future of phasing out coal, if you look at it in terms of jobs, we've lost the vast majority of our jobs already. The reason has not been any environmental concern. It's just been our coal mines, the hard coal mines are deep in the ground. We go like 1,300 feet down the ground. Um, it's been extremely expensive. We started importing coal from the US at the time. We switched to gas, which is a cleaner fuel. I mean, mechanization. How many people do you need to get a ton of coal out of the ground in 1950s and in the 1990s? So that has really been steadily going down. And that put a hard strain on the coal mining regions, that a large part of the hard coal is located in one region, hard coal mining. That is, that's a map of Germany. That's the red thing is the state of Northern Westphalia, and the blue thing is the rural area, which was in the 1950s, the striving area, like our Pittsburgh, plus five million people living in that area. Um, and a lot of small, medium-sized uh, cities, a lot of mining towns, steel companies, steel towns. We've had 60% of the people in that region worked in production industry in the 60s, now it's 20%. Basically, that whole region shifted massively from production to service industry. Not only because that is a question of coal mining, but also that is a general trend of how the economy developed. But it's, it's been, and it's, it's not been easy for the region. There is a fairly high share of unemployment still, despite all the efforts we put into that. So to give you that in a picture, that 
is an aerial of a town in the 1950s, and it's not exactly the same spot, but if you fly over it around the corner, um, this is Essen, the, the town of Essen, that, um, it looks like that. And it's, it is a very urban area. It is quite different from this area here, but it totally changed its face. If I go through that timing, there has been a lot of effort of governmental support and governmental programs for those regions. And if I, if I put that in timelines, what I would see in the 50s, we had a boom of coal. In the 60s, there was what I call a phase of denial. People said, it's just in a short-term thing. It's going to pick up again. Yeah? It's not a long-term thing. People couldn't believe that this was a long-term trend. There was a real crisis in the 70s, and in the 90s, we started with diversification of our, of our industry base and modernizing it. Um, the initial thing we did in the 60s up to the 80s, actually up till today, was subsidizing coal. We, we put a subsidy because we didn't want to import the coal from the US. We wanted to have our own coal to employ our miners. In the end, we paid more subsidies for each ton of coal than what, what it would have cost to buy it on the global market. Uh, we put, what's the number? $160 billion, more than $160 billion in subsidies. Uh, from a political point of view, I see the point from, could you develop the region? We probably could have spent that money more wisely had we known what the trend was. Um, just to show you, that is one of the mining pits, it's underground mining in that region, and they've converted this after the, the, the mine was closed, they've converted it in, into a museum to, to preserve the heritage, and I think part of it is the economy, but part of it is what the miners feel, and I don't have to tell you as li you live in a mining region, and I don't, but if I visit the mining region, and some other folks have been visiting it, they just turned it into an event place, and they made it a great place, which I think is yeah, it's an extremely great place to visit. Not that this brings much jobs, but it at least preserves your heritage. What we're currently phasing is, is our lignite mining. We do have, we have hardly any hard coal mining. We're going to close down the last hard coal mine next year, but we have a lot of lignite mining. That is open pit mining. And in those regions, I want to just highlight one more thing before I close, and that's in those regions we're facing that, hey, there's, there's a structural change coming. We don't know whether we phase out coal 2030 or 45, earlier or later. What I find interesting, they've, they've set up an agency, a local, small local agency that is basically by the, the cities, the municipalities, the, the workers' unions, and the business associations, they got together and said, hey, we're going to do something about the region. And they said, okay, let's develop a vision for the region. Where do we want to go? Um, they, they tried to identify potentials. They tried to bring the people together and, and work on the region. They do get state funding. They get like a million per year to make it work. It's a region with two million inhabitants. It's, it's a fairly, fairly rural region, but it's close, closer to urban centers compared to this place. There are two things that I want to highlight. One is they're, they're looking for projects where they say they have a thing of, you can throw in ideas, they help you support your ideas, and they bring your ideas forward, and then they pick a certain group of winners. I think similar schemes are, are in place here. What I find interesting, what they started doing is they know they're going to decommission a power plant in the next two years. Um, and knowing that, Normally, the, 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 our process would be, okay, they're going to decommission the power plant, they let it sit there for 10 years, then maybe the company has money to tear down, or maybe it's in 20 years they tear it down, and then you have some ruins and whatnot, and nobody does anything with the spot. But they said, hey, we know we're going to decommission it in two years down the road, and actually it's an interesting spot, because there is a lot of infrastructure. We have a train connection, which in Germany is an important thing to have a good train connection. There's much more train travel. Uh, we have a lot of infrastructure in that area, can we not use it? And they started a process bringing together 
the owner, the utility, the unions, business associations, uh, municipalities, NGOs, civil society, and said, hey, let's sit down and develop something for that plant, even if we know we're going to take it down three years down the road. And I've, I, don't, I can't tell you what, how they achieved, but I found it interesting their way of forward-looking and saying, we know what's going to come. Let's, let's sit together with different people and make the most of it. Um, I had a conclusion slide which I skipped. I just want to say um, thank you for letting me talk and thank you even more for letting me visit the region and hear what the things are that you experience. And, and I don't know how many differences or similarities you see to what is happening here and I'm just looking forward to the discussion. I, yeah, I, I enjoy, I'm a scientist, I, I suck up information from other people. I, I, I want to learn as much as I can and I hope that this at least helps you to think new ideas. Uh, that would be my dream, that have a fruitful exchange. Thank you. Thank you. That was really great. All righty, let me pull up my presentation here. All righty. Cool. So, um, as you all, uh, as, as Elizabeth said at the beginning, we had a couple other speakers lined up for you tonight, um, which we hoped would give a more uh, holistic sort of look at all the different things that are happening related to uh, economic transition in Central Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky right now, because there are a lot of really exciting things that are happening. Um, so what I'm going to talk about is just one piece of that. And the piece that I was going to talk about here is uh, the federal policy piece, um, which is the sexiest I know. Um, so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about two uh, federal policy initiatives that um, aren't really energy policy. Uh, they're more they're related uh, to the transition happening in coal communities throughout the country, not just Appalachia but uh, initiatives that are in place right now and that are also sort of being reproposed in Congress um, to assist communities struggling with the decline of the coal industry uh, here in Eastern Kentucky all the way to com coal communities out west. So um, the story that I'll sort of talk about will be very familiar to a lot of people in this room because you have been players in the story yourselves. Um, because both of these initiatives really originated from communities in Central Appalachia who uh, were talking about these ideas related to mine reclamation and uh, community and economic development in, in coal communities for a number of years. And then those sort of ideas and discussions became actual proposals. And um, they really started to take shape in 2015 when multiple uh, local governments throughout the region passed resolutions um, proposing these these policy ideas. They they weren't proposed on the federal level, level yet, um, and or they weren't they weren't bills yet. Um, there was some discussion in Washington about them, but it was really the efforts of people throughout this region uh, who um, passed these resolutions and demonstrated support for them. Many of those people are in this room. Many of those local elected officials are in the room who's, who have been big champions of, this, uh, of these proposals. Letcher County uh, and Whitesburg both, both, both passed resolutions in support of these proposals. Letcher County was the first county in the country that did that. And almost 30 local governments and representative bodies throughout the Central Appalachian region uh, across West Virginia, Kentucky, Virginia, and Tennessee all passed these resolutions saying, hey, Federal legislators, we, this is something we want you to introduce in Congress and make a reality. And they're also, I think, because of the leadership of local people, uh, they've been bipartisan things. So they, the, both of these issues um, are issues that our congressman here in Eastern Kentucky, Congressman Hal Rogers, who's a Republican, um, has really, really championed and been a leader on. And they're also initiatives that uh, a number of Democrats have supported um, and that President Obama also had proposed and supported when. when back in 2015. So the first, the, the first one I'm going to talk about is uh, related to mine reclamation, the Reclaim Act. Um, and the second piece is called the Power Initiative. 
so first I'll talk a little bit about this mine reclamation thing. So there are over 10, it will cost over $10 billion to reclaim all of the abandoned coal mines throughout the country. It'll, it'll take over half a billion dollars just to reclaim the ones here in Kentucky. And that's a really a lowball estimate. So, I mean, people who live in, in eastern Kentucky know about abandoned coal mines. Um, they impact people's, you know, they're sort of a public health concern. They're also an impediment to local economic development. And um, they're also an opportunity. They're a problem right now, but they're also an opportunity to create an economic asset. Um, and what do, I, what do I mean by that? So people in the region uh, wanted to take this federal money and employ people to clean up these abandoned coal mines and actually create economic projects on the sites once they're cleaned up. And these, these coal mines can be anything from uh, like abandoned strip mines to high walls to uh, streams that are polluted by uh, abandoned mines. And the idea, again, is to sort of have an immediate economic impact, uh, employing former coal miners and others who have actually, you know, earth-moving skills to reclaim these sites, and create cool economic opportunities once that sort of economic shot in the arm has, has played through. Um, so that, that was sort of the original idea and proposal, and after some organizing happened, um, these proposals actually came a bill, became a bill called the Reclaim Act, um, which is still in Congress, and I'm going to talk about the status of it uh, here in a second. So it was first introduced last year, and it would take a billion dollars of existing money. This is money that's not taxpayer money. It was collected um, from a per-ton fee on coal mining. So this is money that's come from the coal industry over the past 40 years, and the idea is to take this a uh, billion dollars that's sitting idle in D.C. and disperse that to states for the benefits that I just talked about a minute ago. Um, it was introduced last year, uh, gained a number of co-sponsors. It was reintroduced this year. It is a live proposal right now. When it was reintroduced, it was kind of weakened. Um, but there was really, really good news a couple weeks ago. The bill passed through committee, which is a huge, huge victory, and the bill was strengthened. Um, and we can talk a little bit about that in the Q&A if you'd like. But um, it's now at a point where this stronger version of the bill, which, again, the main sponsor is Congressman Hal Rogers, who represents Eastern Kentucky. There's also a version uh, in the Senate, two different versions in the Senate. Um, one of them is sponsored by Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell. One is sponsored by West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. And um, we're sort of at a point now where this version that just passed through the committee We'll go to the House next. And so we need to, um, that's one of sort of my asks, asks of you all, is to continue to spread support for the bill um, in eastern Kentucky. But, you know, if you have folks in the surrounding region, we really, really need to uh, continue to, to gain support for the bill as it heads to a vote in the full House. Um, there's, there's another related initiative, uh, and I won't d dive too much into this, but it was a, basically a, an idea to pilot this mine reclamation idea, to, an idea to pilot the Reclaim Act. Um, and I just wanted to sort of, just so folks know, because word of this hasn't really, really gotten out, $90 million was appropriated in 2016 for this idea of reclaiming coal mines and creating economic opportunities on them. And again, you know, the, the organizing efforts and the leadership here was a big part of that. Um, so that $30 million came to Pennsylvania, Kentucky, and, and West Virginia, and that amount was actually, um, it was up to $105 million last year, um, which was another huge victory. And then um, this year, Trump has actually, in his budget, proposed to eliminate this, this pilot, um, which is distressing, but the... Uh, the budget that has been recently proposed by Congress, not by the president, but by Congress, has it at $75 million. So that's, that's a good sign, but I think we want to continue to, to watch that. Um, a couple examples of these projects that we can do on reclaimed mines. Uh, one is a small business in the next county over in Wise County, Virginia, that is a vineyard that has been operating on a reclaimed strip mine for over 10 years, small business. 
Um, they have events there. They, they you know, it's a, it's a, they have their own vineyard and winery. Um, this is a wind, there's a wind farm in Tennessee on a reclaimed strip mine um, that's been in operation for a number of years. I think it's, it got going in early 2000s. Um, there's an even bigger one out west on a reclaimed strip mine. Um, in West Virginia, they have uh, taken a reclaimed strip mine and they're building a sustainable agriculture project on it. So they're building like a state-of-the-art aquaponics facility where they're going to sustainably produce vegetables and fish and sell that to local food markets. And the cool thing is, is also that they're going to use the abandoned mine shaft. They're going to use it for a geothermal energy purpose. Uh, and it's going to be powered, the whole thing's going to be powered by on-site renewable energy, uh, so, a solar project. So this is in the works right now. This is a picture of a former coal miner in West Virginia who's already sort of getting going on some of the um, agriculture stuff on site. And this is a coal field development refresh Appalachia project, if you've heard of, of, that, of that organization. Um, so that's sort of the mine reclamation piece. And then I just wanted to say a little bit about um, this this other initiative called the power initiative so um, it's a it's an initiative that really is just general community and economic development investment dollars specifically for projects in communities struggling with the decline of the coal industry so if you have an awesome idea for a community or economic development project like there has been funding over the past few years and people are continuing to fight for more of that investment so that you know, I would, I would encourage you to, to keep that in mind if you have a proposal. Um, there's a, a hotel redevelopment project on Main Street here in Whitesburg that got a grant through the Appalachian Regional Commission as part of this money. Um, and this, again, was one of the initiatives that um, was included in the resolutions that these local governments had passed. Um, 65, a $65 million appropriation was made in 2016 by Congress. Um, that was increased to $85 million um, in, in 2017, last year, and that's just in the Appalachian Regional Commission, which is like a redevelopment agency that focuses on Appalachia. And also the EDA stands for the Economic Development Administration. That's kind of self-explanatory. And again, this is money just for uh, communities struggling with the decline of the coal industry. Trump has proposed to eliminate this in his proposed budget. Um, Again, very distressing um, because there's really a lot of momentum that has been gained uh, over the past few years, and I think it's something that we really want to continue. Um, and just to give you a status update, this is really hot off the press. Last week, Congress kind of came out with their, with their proposal on this. The ARC uh, budget includes, and this is just a proposal, it hasn't been passed yet, but it, it does include $50 million for the power initiative, which is really a uh, power, power initiative just through the Appalachian Regional Commission. So that's really, really great news. That is, um, you know, Congressman Hal Rogers has definitely had a, a big role in, in fighting for that as well. We don't know about the Economic Development Administration budget yet, but um, this is something also we really, really want to watch and make sure that we tell our legislators and our senator, Senator McConnell, would have a big role. Um, he's had a big role in supporting these in the past, and we want to make sure that um, his support for the ARC and for economic development stuff in, in coal communities continues. So uh, that's basically just an overview of those two initiatives. Um, I think we were hoping maybe that our two other speakers who are trapped in traffic would have showed up by now. It doesn't seem like that's going to be the case. So Liz, do you have anything or do you want to just open up for Q&A? The first question in the Q&A was about coal mining in Germany in the 70s. The audience member said that most people remember that there was October War in 73 and that there was an oil embargo, OPEC preventing oil to come to the U.S., and wanted to know if there was a similar thing happening with Germany in the 1970s, since there was a resurgence of mining in the coal mining areas of the U.S. from 73 and the years after that. First you'll hear the reply, and then Mason's Betsy Whaley was able to join in on the discussion. There was a similar thing in 73. That's what I said. The Car Free Sundays was our re reaction to when we didn't have enough oil because there was the OPEC. Um, uh, um, yeah, not bringing oil. Uh, interestingly, there was not the reaction of let's increase coal. 
there there has been reactions of of course um hey we got to diversify uh, at the time there were discussions also on on nuclear on like long-term gas storage we we don't have we don't basically we don't have uh, domestic gas and oil or at that time we hardly it, it basically ran out so we have like underneath caverns for long-term gas storage uh, oil storage we, we made up an oil storage to keep our oil supplies running for three months but basically i think that's that's maybe the bigger difference that i see to to the energy policies to the us there has been an extremely stringent policy on Hey, we want to go into energy efficiency. We got to make our houses more energy efficient. We want to use less, and and then into renewables. We're we're we perceive ourselves as a technology country. We don't have not anymore that many resources. We want to have the technology solution. That would be good. And the idea was, if if we develop it for us, potentially we could export it. That works in some fields and others it doesn't. But it's hey, we want to bring down our consumption. That's been the idea. And and if you look at energy efficiency in houses, I would have another slide, but I, I'll top that. That had to, has really been brought down. The legal standard from the the first legal standard was introduced in '77, and it's been brought down decade by decade. And it's like one fifth of the consumption of the energy consumption we had per square meter in the houses we had in the '70s to what we have today and we're still going down like every five years that standard gets be made more stringent and if you if you build a new house that has to be up to that standard and it's going down 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 i think one of our one of our other speakers has just showed up great great news thanks for making it really appreciate it betsy i'm not used to sitting for an hour and a half in traffic between hazard and whitesburg <laughs> Uh, my name is Betsy Whaley. I'm with MACID, which is the Mountain Association for Community Economic Development. And I want to talk just a little bit about the work that MACID does and the um, work that we're doing in the transition um, to a new economy. MACID um, works to, we're working in the 54 Appalachian counties of Kentucky. And our goal really is to support a just and sustainable transition to a post-coal economy in this region. And um, so I'm the Vice President for Strategic Initiatives. So one of the things I do is I get to go around the region and hear about wonderful work that's happening. And I'm always excited because I always hear about transition work that's happening here. That's not called that, but that's what it is. And so when we think about what, what the transition will be in this, um, in this next era that we're living in, we think about a bottom-up economy. You know, we don't think that there is a silver BB, a silver bullet that's going to fix things. There are a thousand silver BBs. And we see all of those BBs really coming to life within communities. And uh, part of the work that we're doing in the energy field um, we do demonstration projects. So, so we are a community development financial institution, sort of like a nonprofit bank. We do lending to small businesses, technical assistance to small businesses. We do demonstration projects to try to prove what's possible. And so one of the things we're doing um, in a demonstration project is a, a program called House Smart. We work with the cooperatives, six uh, rural electric cooperatives here in East Kentucky. Um, and we provide a means that homeowners can upgrade uh, to more energy efficiency in their home and pay back um, the, the co-op does the work and the homeowner pays the co-op back over time on their bill. It's called House Smart. And um, we see a variety of responses to that program. Um, some of the cooperatives have really taken off and are running with it, but others are, are much more apprehensive. Um, I think anxiety is pretty evident in the economy here, not just for local communities, but um, in the, the electric service providers. And so what we see is that there's a lot of apprehension um, within the um, co-ops and the IOUs, the um, co corporate 
um, electricity providers. And they're really apprehensive about a number of things, the changing weather patterns. Their business model is really uh, dependent on a predictable pattern of weather. They need so many cold days to make enough money to support their business model. They make more money when it's cold. And so as the weather changes, that affects their ability to be profitable or to, as, as co-ops, they're not, they aren't out for profit, they're out for member service, but it affects their business model. They're anxious about um, that costs are rising faster than they have in a long time. For, for a long time, the cost of electricity in East Kentucky was uh, kind of artificially suppressed. And as that rises, that creates a lot of anxiety in the consumers. They feel betrayed, like the, the um, co-ops are trying to do something to them. And so um, they're, they're feeling that pressure. Um, and they're really trying to figure out what their role is in, the, in this um, new economy going forward. Are they going to be grid maintainers who just maintain the grid and service the grid? Are they going to provide ancillary services as we see more solar coming online and as costs go down for solar power, we expect to see more homeowners um, actually taking the initiative to do solar. And so will the co-ops and the energy service providers, will they provide battery storage for homeowners who can then feed the energy back to their home? Um, and then, you know, they are they is part of their role to provide what they call beneficial electrification, like electric cars to provide the, the um, servicing and, and um, recharging for electric cars. And they're really caught between the regulation that they have from the state, um, the market-driven advances like the falling cost of solar and technology, and consumer demand for green energy. Now, in this region, that consumer demand comes more from corporate than it does from homeowners. Um, but if a Coca-Cola calls and tells their service provider, their electricity provider, that they, want, they have some corporate um, sustainability goals and either they need to meet those goals through the service provider, so like right now we, say, we see East Kentucky Power, which is the power generator for the co-ops in East Kentucky, we see them building a solar farm. In part, that's a response to corporate demands uh, for the ability to meet their sustainability goals. But they're caught between all that. And um, consumers are applying pressure, um, but I think they have some, some apprehension and anxiety as well. Um, the current system is very opaque. If you really want to know what's happening, it takes a lot of work to figure that out. Um, and I think we have been protected from the true cost of energy for a long time. We haven't really been aware, um, certainly the power providers have not uh, been forthcoming about all the environmental costs that go along with uh, the electric generation that we have. So, you know, as we move forward with MACID, we're working to support energy efficiency in homes and businesses. Uh, we're, we're trying to find creative ways to finance projects and finance businesses, either through long-term patient loans. Um, we have a new loan product that's a crowd match product. So if there's a new business that comes online and they need a small loan, they don't have good credit, we will take their crowd match as a sign of their social capital, which is a form of credit. So, you know, if someone says, I want to start this solar company, but my credit score is bad and I really don't have any collateral, okay, well, if they do a GoFundMe or, or some kind of a crowd match and get $50,000, Mason will loan them $50,000 uh, to match that as, as a sign of good faith and to invest in their um, social capital. So, um, and we're also working to increase capacity building in communities to try to help support organizing of communities to solve problems, uh, to be able to uh, be self-sufficient and draw upon their assets so that they don't have to look outside of their communities and outside of this region uh, for answers to their problems. So I'm really sorry to have missed the earlier presentation.
We returned to Q&A and one of the audience members had a question about hydroelectric pump storage. He said since there's been discussion in the region about hydroelectric pump storage using underground mine cavities, he was wondering what the status of that was in Germany. Yeah, uh, Funny, I just looked it up when I was here because I, we've been discussing it. Um, there is actually, the, as I said, the last, the last hard coal mine that we have that's running and it's, it's, it's going out of um, business in, in 2018. And we, we, there was just a study released that looked at the, the um, geophysics of that uh, is that suitable for pump storage and and the cost of it and it's it's as I said it's like a if I calculate 600 meters that would be like oh no that's like 2,000 feet is that <laughs> times three <laughs> okay times three okay More, that's 2,000 feet if I calculate right 2,000 feet down and basically there there the idea is to have an artificial lake on top and have it run down. Technically, it's it's doable, and what they found out is that the cost is, if it's the same as if we put pump storage just on a mountain, that would be the same thing. So there is cost because you have to seal the thing off and it has to be there for, I don't know, 50, 100 years, of course, without leakage into the whole uh, system. Um, I. I think it's we, we don't have that in place. It's not been done yet. Um, the, the, we would have to discuss the details. The the, the the electricity price in in Germany currently there's a disincentive for storage. Very complicated thing of how our market is in in place. Although we know we need the storage, there's not a good incentive for storage. That is something I think the politicians have to pick up. If they do that, I think that would be a great thing to do. And it's of course a very symbolic. Thing to do is say, hey, the last hard coal mine we transform into a pump storage thing. I think a lot of people would love to see that. Also, the people who live in that region, there, there are plans of that. I would actually can show you slides on that. Um, it, it's not done yet, and it's a question of, of does it pay? Is, is the incentive scheme there? And, and I don't know, um, currently it's just a question of how the market is designed, basically, or, or framework is governed. Thank you. Um, what has been the role of the German government in redeveloping and restoring the workforce that is coming from coal mines or the nuclear plants that have been shut down? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think there is, in general, I think there is more government intervention in, in Germany and as it is. I mean, I, I grow up, I have, we have public health care and I, Everybody in Germany, everybody, literally everybody, you go to the doctor, your bill gets paid. This is what we do. There's, I don't, I didn't, I studied physics. I paid a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars per year for studying, and that gives me a free ticket for the public transport, if which costs five hundred dollars if I buy it. So it's, it's a net benefit if I study, right? It's my life is cheaper if I study. So uh, our governmental system is different. Um, <laughs> uh, so having said that, yes, there has been much more. Uh, there has been a whole lot of governmental support um, for the regions, a lot of support for the miners going out of uh, losing their jobs, um, early, early retirement, large sums of uh, going into early retirement. Um, I think it's it's very different if you look at the region. As I said, this 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 western region, very urban region, they've been trying to reallocate the thing. And, uh, there has been a massive investment into putting universities in that region, enhancing uh, education, not only for the miners, like in the individual miner that does something else, but for the people in the region in general, for the kids of the miners to have a future. Um, if you look at East Germany, we've had the collapse of East German economy after reunification, which was basically I'm, I'm a very inefficient industry that basically collapsed, and I don't know how many billions we've put into trying to bring that up. And if you look at that East German region, and it's not just the mining region, if you look also chemical industry in, in the East German region, many, many people have left the regions because there was a total collapse of the industry base. They've gone to other places. There's in migration, yeah. 
but yeah, there has been large public support for that, and and there's continuous public uh, public support for that. I don't, I don't know. If I look at your numbers, I'm I'm I we discussed that before. I do have the German numbers. It's hard to figure out, but looking at those numbers, I would say that is small to what I would guess we see in Germany. Um, as far as producing energy. Right. And I know that there are environmental impacts to all those things. Right. Like mining that goes into solar panels and uh, hydroelectric right. sometimes messes up yeah. the ecosystem. Right. Um, is there a reason why you think people are um, so, um, that, that solar is so popular? Is it the best way to go or is it a combination or is there an ideal, is there something that you all would think would be an ideal? That, that could be a long discussion in itself. I mean, um, I think we come from, from a path where basically uh, the renewables were decentralized and small scale, and it's like small is beautiful, and, and everybody loved it. And now it's more and more. I mean, we have 30% renewables. If you go through some regions, you have wind farm, wind farms. Uh, we have cornfields that jo just go into biomass. There is There are critical voices in, in all kinds of things and it's it's not i mean if we're industrialized countries if we go for 80 90 95 or 100 percent renewables this is going to be a lot of renewables this is not small scale this is really heavy industry so there has been large discussions of care where can a wind farm go and where can it not go there are regulations on that it's increasingly stringent standards of how do you do solar panels so that they could be recycled 20 years down the road? Because not everything is clean in the solar panel. I mean, when, when you take it down, there's things you don't want to just throw it into waste. Um, there's more and more discussion on that. And, and that will be an increasing discussion if, if, if you think of, there's currently our debate is shifting towards uh, electromobility. If I imagine on top of the electricity we have now, we power all of our cars by electricity, that's going to be a whole lot of wind farm. There is an increasing debate about that. And, but it's, it's a debate we face. I mean, the alternatives, what, what, I mean, I personally think it's, there's, the good thing is to have a mix of hydro, biomass, uh, wind, solar, geothermal, whatever there is in the region. But of course, we have to be careful about not just, yeah changing it and, and not thinking of what could be negative impacts. There are, you, you have to be clear about that. There are negative things of renewables. Be careful about it, but I think it's still the better option. Well, and I think that solar appeals um, because I think it's an asset that we already have. It's, it's a more, once you install the solar, it's a more passive kind of use of the asset that we already have. Um, and I think that appeals to a lot of people in a variety of ways. One, because I think it feels, um, it appeals in America to some sense of independence, right? Mm -hmm. I can be self-sufficient. I can be more self-sufficient. I don't need to count on those people that are, you know, taking my money every month. Um, and I do think that the, some of the environmental costs of the solar industry are invisible to us. We don't hear about that. So it's much easier to think it's clean. And it's cleaner than a lot of kinds of energy, but I think there are costs, both human and environmental costs, to that. So uh, a few of us had the opportunity to actually go to Germany and tour some of these coal regions um, a few months ago, and I just wanted to share a couple of, of the things that struck me. Um, you've talked a little bit about the similarities um, between uh, Appalachia and the rural region in particular, um, I wanted to share a few thoughts on some of the differences, I think, and also some of the lessons that struck me. Um, in terms of the differences, I think, you know, one thing is like the transition from the, in the rural area has happened over many decades. And we are really just um, at a, a point of acceleration in Appalachia in terms of that transition. Um, another thing I think is like, like you said, rural, the rural area is very urban, and there's definitely a difference in terms of development, especially, um, and development strategies that you would employ. 
um, in terms of rural and, and, and urban places. Another thing is I think the union density there, the labor groups ha have really seemed to play, uh, been at the table uh, in terms of conversations about how to, how to transition. Um, and then the, the last thing is what you talked about just in terms of a general um, uh, difference in our governmental programs and sort of the structure of our social policy, right? Um, but there are, there are some lessons that struck me um, when I was there. One was that um, it, it, it's really taken multiple forms of intentional public investment. I mean, we would meet with like um, a mayor in a, in a coal community and he would be like, look, this would not have happened without public investment. It just, it would, we would have never made a transition. Um, so I think that's important to just, that, that, that that's been the experience there. The other thing, uh, two other things, one is that uh, in the Ruhr area, you, the, there's been an economic diversification that has happened. A big part of that has been intentionally investing in education, like you talked about. But also, um, one thing that we talk about here a lot is that we, we want to um, invest in sectors that are, that are based on the assets that we have here. And some of the assets that they had in the rural area were um, experience, a lot of engineering expertise related to coal mining. And now we have, or you, you all have in those regions, um, renewable energy, solar and, and wind energy, I think in particular, um, engineering firms that were born out of, literally out of the assets that you had there. And then the other thing was, and I think it's kind of related, is um, we heard a lot about like restoration um, and reclamation industries that have got going there, which again just built on the assets that you have there. So it was just very encouraging to me to see that like something we talk about here a lot, like in terms of sustain sustainable development, is that we want to leverage the assets that we have. There are some examples to, to draw from in terms of the rural area. Um, and then the last thing was just, and I'd love to get a little perspective from you, from you on like, it just seems like there was, a, in many of these places, there was a very intentional plan. Like, we're, there's gonna be a phase out, there's gonna be a transition. What is our plan for the workers and the communities here? Um, could you just say a little bit about um, some of the actors who were at the table to develop that plan? I mean, it sounds like there was an agency, but um, what does that look like? I think that's a, also a cultural thing. We're German, we like to plan, right? It's, uh, yeah, we, we like to plan things through. I mean, we have an energy strategy until 2050, right? I don't know if we're gonna make it, but we, at least we've got a plan, right? So, um, not all of the plans have turned out to be great plans, but, um, no, but it's, it's, I think there's this idea of, I mean, if, if I look at what Mesut is doing, uh, I, a lot of the things, they, they would be very similar to what, what I see in, in the communities. And especially if you look at the rural region, not the rural area where you, where you said, the urban mining region, but the, the other mining region, which is the rural area. area. And a lot of the, the, the struggles are the same. And, and the, where you said, hey, you, you try to pull it in bottom up and, and you try to have like basically small scale entrepreneurial things and helping the thing. That's pretty much solutions we also try to draw on. But um, I think some of it is, is, is more formalized. There is the state government saying, okay, we need that. We need an agency who coordinates that, who brings businesses together. Here, there is a, a million, do uh, yeah, million dollars, million euros per year. Take that and bring the people together. And, and with a small team of five, six, staff people, this is your funding and go. And there's, it's, it's trying to be institutionalized and there's more assessment of hey, what could be potentials and that is spread out. I know that uh, it's, it's interesting. I've been, I've been discussing that for, for four or five years and saying, hey, the coal mining thing is gonna be the, the, the next thing because it's, it's, it's the social dimension of our energy policy. It's the question of how do we share our the wealth that is generated from this transition. In Germany in general, it's, it's the shift to renewables is, we have way more jobs in renewables than we lose in coal mining. It's, it generates wealth, but how do we share that? The last year I've had so many calls for proposals from governmental agencies that says, 
can you write a study on this? We need to be able to make a plan on this. So there, it's much more, the government is, yes, we, we gotta know what, how this is working in the regions. We don't have the expertise, but we wanna underpin our 50 years, or 2050 energy plan with sound regional policy. So yeah, this, is that an answer to your question or is that, did I bypass your question? But yes, yeah, there, I mean, there's yeah. this approach, I think, mm -hmm. yeah. And that does it for tonight's Mountain Talk. I want to send a special thank you out to Nora Lula and the Bull Foundation, to Mountain Association for Community Economic Development, and the Appalachian Citizens Law Center. I've been your host, Elizabeth Sanders. Making Connections is brought to you by WMMT Mountain Community Radio. Find out more at makingconnectionsnews.org.